You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. As Kendall mentioned earlier, we're in the, actually in the middle of Christmas tide. Uh, the 12 days of Christmas goes from December 25th to January 6th. And what you just heard read in Matthew 2 takes place during that time frame. And so, on one hand, as we looked at on Christmas Eve, this is a time of good news and joyful singing. But on the other hand, as we just heard in Matthew 2, uh, there is darkness in these stories. There was actually an article about this in the New York Times yesterday. Uh, It was about the fourth day of Christmas, which is the day in which the church remembers uh, the massacre of the innocent children under the reign of Herod. In contrast to our silly song about the 12 days of Christmas, that's, this is what this author says in yesterday's article. The birth of Christ is followed not by leaping lords and milkmaids, but by a massacre of children. The Christmas story must be told in the context of suffering and death because that's the only way the story makes sense. If I'm going to put it in simpler terms, much, much simpler terms, He's just saying that Elf doesn't tell the whole story. Great movie. You should watch it every year. Get the Christmas cheer, all of that. That's part of the story. But there are also movies like The Children of Men. Uh, It came out a long time ago. Some of you are in middle school, so you may not remember it. It's not a Christmas movie, but when I watched it over 10 years ago, I could not help but think of Matthew 2. When the film begins, the youngest person in the world has just died and at the age of 18. And so there has been a generation of global infertility. It is a world without kids. And you can imagine how dark and ominous that is. Everything from the color of the film to the music to the pacing, it is dark and ominous. It's seemingly a world without hope. As the story unfolds, a woman becomes mysteriously pregnant. Uh, she is an obscure woman, no status whatsoever, yet she's part of this miraculous thing, the most miraculous thing that anybody has probably ever seen. And there's one group of people who see her and her child, especially as the hope for humanity. And there's another group of people who want to kill the child. And the whole movie revolves around the conflict between these two groups of people. Uh, The woman and the child are on the run constantly. There's conspiracy and danger. People die over the conflict of this child. It's just a helpless baby, but it seems as if the whole world hinges on this baby's birth. Isn't that the Christmas story? An obscure woman, miraculously pregnant, a helpless child with a price on his head. Some people cherish him, others plot his death. It's at least the part of the story that we see in Matthew 2. In the movie, you would expect people to rejoice that there's a child being born, but many do not. And when you're reading the gospel accounts, you would expect everyone to respond the way the Magi do, just to like drop whatever you're doing and go see this king 
fall down and worship him, give him gifts, but many do not. And the reason is, is that though the light of God has come into the world, it is still a dark world. And in Matthew 2, the darkness has a name, Herod. At the beginning of the chapter, we see that the Magi had come to Jerusalem looking for he who has been born king of the Jews. And when King Herod hears about this would-be king, he is troubled. And when Herod's troubled, everybody's troubled because it's unsafe. He's not the kind of person to tolerate rivals. And so he learns that the child is to be born in Bethlehem. And so he sends the Magi there and he says, when you find him, come back and report to me. So the Magi go, they find the baby, they fall down and they worship him. But then they're warned not to go back to Herod. And so they depart another way. And this is where you can feel the tension start to mount. And the conflict really picks up in verse 13. So if you have a Bible, open up to Matthew 1. It's on the first page of the New Testament in the Pew Bibles in front of you. We're going to walk through this story, and I want you to see it as we go. Verse 13, I cannot say that number today, 13. This is where it gets uh, really tense. Now, when they, the Magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So just big picture, I want you to see the dramatic change in language that takes place here because it kind of tells the story. Uh, Up to this point in Matthew, these are the words that are used to describe Jesus. In chapter one, he will save his people from their sins He is born king of the Jews in chapter 2. The prophecies say that he will be called a ruler and will shepherd his people. You have pagan astrologers coming from afar to worship this child. These are the words you would expect for the son of the most high coming into the world. Now, in chapter 2, verse 13, the language shifts. Now they are told to flee. We're told that Herod wants to destroy the child. There's a scene where they depart in the middle of the night. Even after Herod dies, we are told that they are afraid and they withdrew to Nazareth. And so how, how do we go from save and rule and shepherd to flee and depart and afraid? What is going on here? How is it that he who has been conceived of the Holy Spirit is on is running for his life. Why, why does the deliverer need to be delivered? The headlines should read, God is coming. Instead, the headline reads, God is on the run. And when you're reading this story, you ask the question, why is God on the run? Matthew here is showing us the humanity of Jesus, which we're going to look at. And one of the things we'll see is that his humanity represents both our humanity, but also the hope for humanity. 
So let's just take a look at what Matthew is telling us about the humanity of Jesus. We see two, two things here. The first one is in verse 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Uh, This is the darkest part of the story. It is just awful when you think about like the historical event itself. That a man would be that paranoid and wicked and desperate to protect himself. That he would slaughter all the male children in the region under two. It's awful. Uh, We have been talking about lament over the last number of weeks and this is, it's truly lamentable. Matthew references Jeremiah 31, he likens it to this picture in Jeremiah 31 where the mothers of Israel are weeping and mourning for the loss of their children in the exile of Israel. This is like that. And this reference here reminds us, first of all, that suffering is not new. As long as we live in a fallen world, there will be lament and longing. In the uh, New York Times article, The author says this. This story speaks a powerful word into our own day. We live in a world in which political leaders are willing to sacrifice the lives of the innocent on the altar of power. We're forced to recall that this is a world with families on the run, where the weeping of mothers is often not enough to win mercy for their children. More than anything, the story of the innocents calls upon us to consider the moral cost of the perpetual battle for power in which the poor tend to have the highest casualty rate. Look, I'm not just talking about current U.S. political issues. This is the story of human history. The story reminds us that that as long as the world has fallen, there will be suffering and lament. It also reminds us what it meant for Jesus to be human For God to take on flesh meant that he subjected himself to the dark forces of this world. From the moment of his birth, death and darkness were hunting Jesus down. Now, here's the light in the darkness. Jeremiah 31 is actually about the liberation of God's people from the suffering of exile. And so for Matthew to tie it in here to this story, he is pointing that to the fact that in the advent of Jesus, the, the promised restoration is finally here in him. There is a light of hope here. But Jesus is not going to bring restoration the way that people think he is. He doesn't come with strength and might. He comes in weakness. Uh, and this, too, is a picture of our humanity. It's interesting, uh, again, the language. In chapter 1, up through the beginning of chapter 2, three times he's called Jesus. But after chapter 2, verse 1, he's simply the child. Eight times when referring to Jesus, they just, he just calls him the child. It's a picture of his humanity. 
Look with me, beginning in verse 19. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So again, the child is on the run. He should be headed to Jerusalem. That's, that's a proper place for a king. But instead, he's in Galilee, and not just Galilee, withdrew, they withdrew to Nazareth. And Nazareth is just this little village in Galilee. It's just like Nowheresville, Galilee. There's, there's nothing really to say about Nazareth. When Andrew, in John 1, when Andrew goes to recruit Nathaniel, he says, hey, we, come with me, we found the Messiah. I mean, you couldn't say a bigger thing. And Nathaniel's like, oh yeah, who is it? He's like, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel's like, I am not buying that. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I think this was, I really think this was like a cultural slogan they had. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like a bumper sticker on the carts. It's a nowhere place. Sometimes we sing this song called I Stand Amazed in the Presence of Jesus, the Nazarene. Nobody sang that song. That was not a song that they had. Nobody stood amazed at a Nazarene. It's just the lowliest place with the lowliest people. Like the world looked down on Galileans. And Galileans looked down on Nazarenes. It's just hard to imagine a lowlier place. You know, if God had become the president of the world, like if he took on flesh and was the president of the world, that would still be an epic condescension from his throne in heaven. But he goes further than that. He becomes a Nazarene. This is what the prophet Isaiah said 700 years before Jesus He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows." Why did the Son of the Most High go so low as to become a Nazarene? Because that's the kind of people he came to save. The conflict and the struggle that we see in Matthew 2 in the humanity of Jesus represents the conflict and the struggle in all of humanity, in our own lives. So let's go back through these stories and think about it in terms of our own struggle. Uh, since Genesis 3, this has been the story. Humanity has been in conflict with God. Uh, in creation, Adam and Eve have fellowship with God, but in the fall, they run and they hide from God. And when he comes to them, they, they dodge the truth, they shift the blame. Uh, the consequence of their sin is that they're exiled from the garden. 
And so sin made them and us a people on the run. There are two scenes that we looked at that show us not only the conflict surrounding Jesus, but also the conflict in our own lives. Let's look at them again. First, Herod is a picture of humanity under the power of sin. He wants to call the shots. Uh, He feels threatened by anything that encroaches on his power, his security, his reputation, his control. He's a picture of what we are in our natural state. We're, We're lovers of self and enemies of God. We're not all Herod, but we all have some Herod in us, is what he's saying. We run from anything that threatens our comfort and security. We run from relationships. We run from exposure. We run from the truth. And all these things, we're actually running from God. Second, Matthew gives us the child. The child is the main character in the story, but it's interesting, you'll notice he doesn't initiate any of the action. Rather, he's the one being acted upon. And this too is part of our struggle. Uh, we have talked about how human history is full of oppression and exile and injustice. And have you ever wondered why we can't break that cycle? You ever wonder why it's true that history just keeps repeating itself? Well, part of the reason is, is that we are profoundly influenced by the evil powers of this world and the systems and structures that they produce. No matter how much progress we make, No matter how advanced society gets, there are forces and systems and people acting upon us. Genesis 3 calls it thorns and thistles in the ground. Ephesians 6 calls it the cosmic powers over this present darkness. I'm not saying we're not responsible for our actions. We completely are. I'm just saying that we're not in control. We're not sovereign as we think we are. We're not self-sufficient. We're vulnerable. We have weakness, and it's being exploited by the evil one over and over and over again. Even the most advanced societies and the most powerful people are still a people on the run. This is why the Son of the Most High came so low. God is on the run because he came to save a people on the run. One theologian puts it this way. He says, Jesus arrives in discomfort, difficulty, and injustice because that is the condition of the world he came to save. This is the message, the hope of Matthew 2, that he became like us to save us. On the surface, the story is about the struggle and the conflict of humanity. But just underneath the surface, you see the providence of God at work to save humanity. The clue is in verse 15. In verse 15, Matthew tells us the hope for humanity. He, he hints at it. He says that all of this is happening because... Uh, in other words, people are fleeing to Egypt. Jesus is on the run to Egypt, and he's coming back out of Egypt because to fulfill the Lord, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. 
Uh, It's a quote out of Hosea that's referencing the Exodus story. So in the Old Testament, God often calls Israel his son. And and in Hosea, he's referencing to when he delivered his son, his people, out of slavery in Egypt. Through the Red Sea and into the Promised Land. That story, the Exodus story, is the salvation event for the Old Testament people of God. It's rehearsed and celebrated and sung about all throughout the scriptures. And so now Matthew is connecting Jesus to that event to say, he is our salvation. He is now the salvation event in history. The geography uh, tells the story. Joseph and Mary and Jesus go from Israel to Egypt, back into Israel in Matthew 2. It's the same route that the people of God took, um, went into Egypt during the famine, and then were delivered out of slavery 400 years later. That's what Hosea is talking about. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And Matthew applies it here to Jesus. He's saying that Jesus is the true son of God who came to save us from our sins. And it's just interesting that in his humanity, he is reenacting the Exodus event. I want to show you the parallels because it's just striking. In Genesis 37, a man named Joseph has a dream that results in his family going to Egypt. His family became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now in Matthew, a man named Joseph has a dream that results in his family going to Egypt. In Exodus 1 and 2, there's a ruthless ruler who orders the death of all the newborn male children, but the baby Moses is hidden and escapes the threat of death. He becomes their deliverer. Now the Christ child escapes the death sentence handed down by Herod, another ruthless ruler, and he becomes our deliverer. Moses later flees Egypt as a fugitive, but then in Exodus 4, the Lord says to Moses, go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. In Matthew 2, the angel tells Joseph, Take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. Isn't that incredible? Frederick Grail Bruner says that by means of geography, Matthew is saying, look, Jesus, the new Israel. Which doesn't mean a lot to us because we're not the old Israel. We're like, I don't understand what that means. Israel was God's chosen people. They were to be holy and set apart. They were to bear witness to God But their history is just a cycle of repeated failure that goes like this. They they get excited and they say, we're going to do everything God commands us to do. And then they don't do that. And then God restores them. He saves them or delivers them. And then they get excited again. And then they turn away from God again. The only thing that keeps Israel going is the faithfulness of God. It's not a bad summary for the Old Testament. The faithfulness of God for an unfaithful people. The ultimate expression of God's faithfulness to Israel was to give them, to provide for them a new Israel. And that's what Jesus is. He will live the life that they should have lived. He will be holy. He will be devoted. He will bear witness to God. This is why the humanity of Jesus is so important. Listen to just a couple of verses from Hebrews. Hebrews 2. Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 7, he has no need like all of the other high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of his people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Throughout the year, we are always telling the Easter story. We're always talking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus as we should. But first, we must also tell the Christmas story. He lived in our place before he died and rose for us. He lived the life that we should have lived, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. That's what makes his sacrifice acceptable. He's the new Israel, the sinless Savior. Against the backdrop of the innocent children being killed, the Christ child comes as the truly innocent one, like a lamb being led to slaughter. His once-for-all sacrifice empties death of its power, conquers evil, and opens up the way of restoration and forgiveness for God's people. Do you know what that means for us? We're no longer a people on the run. We don't have to keep struggling for control and power because The son of the most high who came so low has now been exalted again. He's in control. He has all the power and we belong to him. We don't have to fear evil or death. We don't have to feel threatened by this world because he's overcome them. In his sinless life and death, he defeated death. And sin. We don't have to hide as if there's something God doesn't know. Of course He knows. We don't have to dodge the truth and shift the blame. We can come clean with God. More than that, we can be made clean. We can be forgiven and cleansed of our unrighteousness. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians God made Him to be sin who knew no sin. The sinless one became sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Come out of hiding into the righteousness of God by grace through faith in Jesus. This is the Christmas story. God was on the run, not away from us, but to us. He was running not because Herod sought to destroy him. He was running because he sought to seek and save the lost. Let's give thanks for him. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.